Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 57, Who is Lieutenant Grant, the Accidental Fighter? Before we begin, I wanted to take a quick moment to note that I made a mistake last episode. As discussed way back during the original series on the Mexican-American War, General Zachary Taylor first went into camp to guard the line of the Nueces River at Corpus Christi Bay, the original border of Texas. When we last left off, we had discussed how the boy Hiram Grant, someone inadvertently became a soldier, and how that began to shape and reshape his life. Apart from receiving a first-rate education at West Point, he gained a new name of Ulysses S. Grant and somehow fell in love. Then, fate often being so cruel, he found himself split from his young lady and sent to a somewhat unpleasant camp in Louisiana. There he awaited the political machinations of presidents. Finally, though, the army mustered its strength under General Zachary Taylor. The 4th U.S. Infantry, Grant included, shipped out for Texas. We left him there, off the shores near the mouth of the Nueces River and Corpus Christi Bay, as men and materials went off the boats and into the camps. Grant had not particularly intended for any of it to happen. Even after obtaining his commission, Grant thought of becoming a mathematics professor, not a fighter. When he fell in love, seemingly at first sight, he first thought of leaving the army altogether. And after months of exhausting and rather pointless duty in the humid Red River country, he did not especially find himself excited by the thoughts of war. All wars are political wars, even if the participants do not deem them so, and the Mexican-American War was no different. Indeed, the deeply political nature of the war lay apparent to those who directly participated in it. For many Americans, expansionism was the ideology of the day. The young republic felt muscular, and the young citizens of the republic envisioned a new future stretching out towards the Pacific coast. We should not overlook the role of technology in enabling this. The railroad and the telegraph, though still in their own infancy, had begun to unite the country and overwhelm the barriers of space and time. Without that element, perhaps Americans might have felt content with their still vast empire, ending maybe in the Rocky Mountains. Perhaps. And the issue did not line up perfectly according to a simplistic party divide. Certainly the Democrats strongly favored the war, much more aggressively and enthusiastically. Yet many Whigs also supported expansionism, just not necessarily at the price of dishonorable war with Mexico. Yet at the same time, many of the Whig Party leaders remembered the downfall of the old Federalist Party, caused by opposing the War of 1812. They intended to avoid that fate. Henry Clay, old but still vital, wavered in public despite opposing it in principle. But his son marched to war on behalf of his country. That said, Army officers such as Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott had a decidedly different view of the situation. Many Army men hailed to the Whig Party, and they looked suspiciously at a war that may be aimed at national aggrandizement, but more specifically held promise to expand slavery and the Democratic Party's least enlightened element. In any case, James K. Polk held the presidency and said generals did not have political followings. Not yet. Furthermore, President Polk laid his foundations very cleverly. 
He carefully manipulated the situation such that some kind of hostilities became, if not inevitable, then at least very likely. And the army officers had no choice but to follow the will of the body politic in this manner. The schemes of President Polk were obvious to those who understood them, but many did not, or could not, or simply believed the propaganda. Grant would later say of it, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day regard the war which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. He may have been right on the morality, but at the time a great many observers might have guessed that Mexico, not the United States, would be the stronger of the two. Mexico, larger and arguably richer, seemed to have far more resources to carry on the fight. In addition, its vast natural geography offered substantial defenses against evasion. Certainly, much of Mexico held rich, fertile farmland. But many of the border regions had little water, and might easily form a barrier. Furthermore, the capital of Mexico City lay deep in the interior, protected by mountains, and its coastal cities were often well defended. Yet the judgment of Lieutenant Grant, and others such as George Meade, acting as one of General Taylor's engineering officers, was that the little army had talent far out of proportion to its size. Indeed, given the array of officers who proved their worth in battle after battle, and then went on to achieve stunning fame in the Civil War ten years hence, there must have been an accumulation of martial ability rarely equaled in history. That said, young Lieutenant Grant also judged that the line infantry were inferior to the volunteers who came after, at least in morale. Early America was no less riven by clashing class and cultural differences than today, and the army did different in that respect, though not entirely as you may expect. Ordinary soldiering was in no way respected as a profession by the average citizen. Despite the rather erratic record of the militia and the central role played by continental and French professionals, many Americans viewed standing armies with deep suspicion. As a result, ordinary soldiers received no respect. They got low pay and endured tough conditions, and at the same time, most citizens just assumed they were failures, or otherwise contemptible. Some officers agreed with those views, and they treated their soldiers poorly, little more than armed prisoners. But General Zachary Taylor emphatically did not. He put on no airs, hardly wore a uniform, and he inspired men to fight and die at his side because he was practically their father. So much for the army at the Nueces, anyway. In the immediate moment, Lieutenant Grant had soldiers and supplies to unload, which he did only to end up with an amusing story at his own expense. Seeing the pulleys used for work, he mistakenly grabbed hold when it wasn't balanced and readied, and ended up going right down into the water. The crew fished him out, soggy rather than injured, and with no particular sympathy for his plight. It wasn't the last time, though, that Grant would dive into the water. Still camped on the beaches, the soldiers had to do a considerable amount of work to create an impromptu landing. The landscape of southern Texas, little settled and with no infrastructure, could hardly support the supplies used by an entire army on the move. In one notable instance, Grant led a detail of men removing obstructions underwater. When they failed to do as he wanted, he simply went right in with them, and showed them what to do personally. Several others on the scene laughed at Grant, of course now soaked the skin. 
but General Taylor happened to be there as well, and he openly approved of Grant's work. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, but shortly thereafter, young Ulysses received his rank in full. Technically, all this time he had been a mere acting second lieutenant, which was about as low as you could go on the officer's rank. This somewhat unusual distinction came into being because the army had junior officers but no formal place in the command structure for them. Now he was, at the least, holding a full commission for whatever it was worth. The army did discover one unique resource in southern Texas before it moved out, its pick of horses from wild herds. Local Tejuanos would capture these strong animals, who proved capable of steeds once broken in. Grant, a notable horseman, even as a boy as we've seen, enjoyed this aspect thoroughly. He even took one particularly strong and free-spirited stallion on a wild three-hour ride until the exhausted horse accepted he could not throw his rider. Unfortunately, thereafter a camp servant, African-American but a free and paid man from New Orleans, let Grant's three horses slip. All of them ran off into the prairie. Grant, at least, never saw them again. Finally, in March of 1846, the army set out for the Rio Grande. General Taylor would have preferred not to do it at all. However, this was Polk's order. The army, though shadowed by Mexican cavalry, encountered no resistance on this path. Now, even today, much of that country is fairly sparse, though hardly empty. In those days, the officers on the march recalled seeing few, if any, signs of civilization. That changed once they reached Matamoros. Though not located precisely at the mouth of the Rio Grande, it was essentially the shipping port for the region, and the only city as far as Monterey. The Mexican garrison, situated on the south side, held their fire and did not strike at the Americans, for the time being. However, they were receiving substantial reinforcements. One might have thought, despite some temporary awkwardness, that perhaps no fighting might occur. After all, given that the countries far north as the Nueces lay mostly empty, could not some compromise be reached on the matter? But President Polk knew his business, and he aimed for war. Having gone out of his way to scupper any kind of peace settlement beforehand, he knew that an American army camped on the Rio Grande would form an unacceptable threat so it proved to be only a temporary truce before the real fighting got underway. From Grant's perspective, the political spark caused by a little cavalry clash off in the dust made little difference. But, from the moment they heard the rumblings of guns from Fort Texas on the Rio Grande, he and his fellow soldiers and officers received orders to march on the Rio Grande supply base. The attack had occurred before both forts had been made fully secure, and so General Taylor would necessarily first march to receive the one and pick up supplies, and then turn back to defend Fort Texas. Both were entirely necessary. The combination provided a secure base of supply, and also provided that the American army would have the power to maneuver. Taylor's army reached the supply port well enough, but on the return trip, a substantial body of Mexican troops blocked the way to Fort Texas, already under siege. This started the twin battles of Palo Alto and then Resaca de Palma. Grant, as a mere second lieutenant, fought by leading ordinary soldiers as an assistant to a captain. 
Now, at such a low grade, he didn't formally command troops. But the captains would generally detail a section of the company to each lieutenant in a fight. At Palo Alto, the infantry did relatively little, which may have been just as well given the lack of seasoning among many of the younger officers. The victory allowed them enough time to adapt to the shock of combat without allowing them to stew in it. Unfortunately, this was not a bloodless battle, and certainly would not start a bloodless war. Lieutenant Grant saw firsthand the effect of artillery fire on human bodies, and it was not pleasant. Even solid shot, the least dangerous projectile under most circumstances, would essentially obliterate any human flesh it struck. The resulting gore would then erupt onto any nearby, an ugly fact that Grant described in his autobiography. But the Americans held a small but decisive advantage in the quality of their artillery, and it proved the difference. Grant made no boasting about his role at Palo Alto, which was true enough. Few of the infantry acted at all. The same could not be said for the following day at Resaca de Palma. Here, in the thick brush and facing an enemy using a natural hollow as cover from artillery, the infantry would take the lead in punching through. Grant took his men forward as a sign with the rest, but found their way completely blocked by scrub. He ordered his soldiers to fall flat so as not to be cut down by the musket fire going overhead. This the soldiers did, and then they backed up and found another path forward. Upon seeing an open way, they all charged right into the Mexican position. But as it turned out, another unit had already punched through the same gap. Grant again was able to laugh at his own modest success, and noted that he made no real difference to the larger battle. Just one junior officer among many, caught up in bad terrain and fighting practically blind. What is more important is what he may have learned from all this. Lieutenant Grant had not particularly hungered after fortune, fame, or glory. And that's just as well, because he didn't find any of those. But he did get into a fight, and he stayed there until he could face the enemy, however awkwardly. He also saw firsthand how Zachary Taylor led his army, and the vital importance of securing lines of supply. That particular lesson would also not be lost upon Grant, for the pure reason that he was detailed to the quartermaster of his regiment, as well as acting as the commissary officer. This, in effect, put him in charge of making all the preparations for the supply and feeding of his men, and moving the goods and rations with the regiment. Among other effects, he would always command later on with a firm grasp on the importance and essentials of supply, and be able to manage it quickly and effectively. He did not, however, particularly desire the dubious honor. You see, the use of quartermasters became necessary because General Taylor lacked adequate transportation, a side effect of President Polk's prioritization of advancing into the Far West. So Taylor turned to pack mules, which required a great deal of tedious work to make ready and keep on the road. In fact, Lieutenant Grant protested his new appointment. Indeed, he may not have been particularly hot to enter a fight, but he explicitly asked a share in the dangers to his regiment alongside other officers. Lieutenant Colonel John Garland, however, wrote back a somewhat mollifying message saying that Grant had been selected for his excellent qualities, and certainly not as a rebuke. In any case, someone had to do the work. Yet even years later, Grant had nothing good to say about those pack mules, and he was a man who always obtained good service from the meanest of horses. 
However ornery or disputatious those mules were, he managed. One of Grant's fellow officers, Lieutenant Alexander Hayes, reported that there was no road so obstructed, but that Grant, in some mysterious way, would work his train through and have it in the camp of his brigade before the campfires were lighted. Thus the army reached Monterey. There they faced a powerful Mexican defensive position. Taylor had received reinforcements, giving him a rather mixed force of professionals and amateurs, mostly brave and endowed with high morale, but many of whose skills were still unpolished. And while the fortifications around the city were not modern military designs, they nonetheless represented an extremely dangerous obstacle that might well defeat the Americans. Additionally, the natural lay of the land provided several defensive positions. Finally, the Mexican garrison significantly outnumbered the Americans still, and they knew the city very well. Lieutenant Grant's own Colonel Garland would lead one of the main striking force, sliding east and then advancing into the city from that direction. And Grant was ordered to stay behind with the wagons. That said, from his own testimony, he heard the guns and felt unable to wait while his friends were facing heavy fighting. So he took a horse and rode out to join them. Then the order to advance came, and, well, he just went off with the unit in his attack, quartermaster or no. He wrote, I had been there but a short time, when an order to charge was given, and lacking the mortal courage to return to camp, where I had been ordered to stay, I charged with the regiment. As soon as the troops charged out of the depression, they came under the fire of the Black Fort. About one-third of the men engaged in the charge were killed or wounded in the space of a few minutes. We retreated to get out of this fire, not backward, but eastward. Grant, in fact, would then turn over his horse to a fellow officer, exhausted in the fighting. He would then take over for an adjutant who had been killed. Grant also recollected the order to charge itself had been a mistake of tactics. He suggested that the unit could have clearly advanced around the fort, there being no good reason to enter within its killing range. The problem, presumably, lay in the fact that the men under fire tended to focus narrowly on that fire. They did not see, or perhaps did not understand in the urban environment, that the areas to their flank lay open. Garland's regiment and other units had, with whatever casualties, still cut off much of the heavily defended east side of Monterey. Mexican units therefore abandoned most of that area during the night, freeing the army to renew its assault. Yet the battle had hardly ended, even though at the same time General Worth was working his way around to the heights west and south of Monterey, almost surrounding it. Now there would be brutal street-to-street -street fighting as Americans pressed in from all angles. The next day, the 4th Infantry was able to advance well enough, as the soldiers unleashed a volley whenever they sighted an enemy forcing the Mexicans to keep their own heads down. But they had to slip through some positions when they came under fire from long range, where the foe had prepared to shoot down the length of streets. However, the body of troops soon ran low on powder and shot. Garland therefore requested a volunteer to return alone and carry word that his force needed resupply, and Grant stepped forward. Perhaps he also felt that this was his duty as a supply officer, too. Grant raced his horse Nelly through the city, hanging from the side of the mound so as to present the smallest target. He, however, said that he faced little danger except when passing the intersections, where he had to cross open ground. 
but he rode fast enough through them the Mexican soldiers couldn't take aim and hit him before he was clear through. In any event, he made it, and reported the situation, as well as noting a group of severely wounded soldiers holed up in a house. He had discovered them during his ride. His regiment was withdrawn before he could return with the ammunition, but the story of Grant's ride seems to have achieved some amount of respect. And as it was, the retreat was only a temporary measure, for General Taylor's strong right arm was already knocking at the last gates of the Mexican stronghold. He would undoubtedly break through the next day. However, the Mexican commander accepted his defeat during the night, and instead got what benefit he could by negotiation. He and his soldiers would leave the city to Taylor and walk away. It had been a costly battle even so. Grant recounts several men he knew who perished in the fighting. And on the night after he accidentally joined the charge with Garland, one officer noted that Grant had gone off to find the body of a friend who had fallen. But he found another man wounded too, to whom he gave water and presumably helped to safety. Grant also detailed the horrible hurt suffered by the injured men he had discovered on his ride through the city, including open gut wounds. Those men were not alone either, for General Taylor had to accept a very high rate of casualties in exchange for such a swift victory over a powerful defensive position. Only the well-trained professionalism of the officers, combined with the high morale of the soldiers, allowed victory in this fighting. The losses amounted to a significant fraction of the army. Though many of the wounded might recover, they often were sent back to safer territory to mend. In the meantime, the army had also lost many of its bravest and finest officers. For his part, 2nd Lieutenant Grant, still a junior man in the Army, would receive a first-hand lesson in politics and the gratitude of civilians. Zachary Taylor's decision to accept the Mexican terms allowed President Polk to effectively strip him of the Army. It may have been the right decision on the ground, but then Polk was not on the ground, but in faraway Washington. As a result, Grant's unit, among many others, was detailed off to the growing force intended for the use of Winfield Scott. He therefore departed before the key battle of Buena Vista, making it one of the only significant fights of the war that he didn't get involved in. And that is where we will leave Grant for this episode. After having his first taste of war, he returned back to the little camps at Fort Texas, now called Fort Brown, in honor of its fallen defender. There he would await the arrival of Winfield Scott and a much larger army. There would be further battles, and many further honors. However, let us also leave off with one additional story of his time in Texas. When Salit camps in Corpus Christi, Grant and some other men sometimes would go off and escort the paymasters as they went up towards San Antonio or Austin. Quite a long journey in those days, with very little in between. In one instance, however, the paymaster was so delayed on the return trip that they actually departed so as not to be considered AWOL. He and another man, Lieutenant Calvin Benjamin, were riding along, and it was getting pretty dark, and they were hearing, in fact, the, the howls of wolves. And this was actually something that Grant had never really experienced before. It seemed to him that there must have been a hundred of the darn things out there, so much of a noise they made. Lieutenant Benjamin, possibly with a little gleam in his eye, uh, turned to Grant and said, well, how many do you suppose might be out there? 
Grant figuring that there must be practically a horde of slavering wolves at the ready. Grant wanted to look cool and collected in front of his friend, so he said indifferently, or as indifferently as he could, oh, about 20, I reckon. And Lieutenant Benjamin just kind of grinned a little bit, and they went on away, and there there were two. <laughs> in recounting the story, Grant, I think, did so in order to remember his friend, who also sailed with him down to Vera Cruz and unfortunately died in the campaigns there. Uh, but also to acknowledge that the sound and fury of the enemy, whether he was in politics or war, was often much worse than the reality. In any case, thank you all very much for listening. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.